I'm not Michelle. She just walked away. Uh, like she said, my name is Melissa Barnhart. Uh, Michelle is mentoring a few of us to do what she does so beautifully. So she will be back with her beautiful words and her wonderful teaching that she prepares for us. But if you don't know me, my family and I have been attending Grace for about seven years. We started attending here when I was pregnant with my son, and he's almost six next week. Um, I grew up here in Hutchinson. I am a dentist, and I used to work with Grant Ringler, and I'm sure many of you know who that is. My husband still works with him, and uh, I am retired or on sabbatical or whatever you want to call it, taking a break. Because a few years ago, I was taking Chris's extreme spiritual makeover study, and boy, did I receive an extreme spiritual and life makeover. During that study, I felt God calling me to quit my job and to become a full-time mom and wife. So that has been quite a change. God has definitely stretched me. I say a lot that I feel like I was a better dentist than I was a mom and a wife. So this was quite a learning experience and a time of sanctification for me, but I'm so thankful that he called me to this change. It has been wonderful to be able to spend more time in his word, to spend more time taking care of my family, and to be able to spend a lot more time serving here in the church. So during this time of transition, I did feel a little something telling me that maybe one day I would want to do what Chris did and what Michelle does And then a few months ago, Michelle approached me about potentially teaching. So God was obviously preparing my heart for this new journey. So since I'm not Michelle, I am a little nervous. I'm sure some of you have seen me up on stage singing during Sunday mornings, and I would much rather be singing in front of you today than speaking. But we will get through this together. So before we get started, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for today. In this time that we get to come together to learn more about you. I ask today that you will help me to clearly go through these chapters in Hosea. I ask that you will help us today to put any distractions aside so that we can fully focus on you and your words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today we'll be discussing Hosea chapters 4 and 5 if you would like to open up your Bibles and able, so that you can reference those. Unfortunately, these are kind of negative chapters. They are about Israel's apostasy, Israel's unfaithfulness to God, or as you see a lot throughout these chapters, the statement that Israel is playing the harlot. And Kathy just teed me up perfectly with her lesson, so we'll kind of say a lot of the same things. So what we saw last session with Michelle was that Hosea and his obedience to God in marrying Gomer seeing Gomer step out on him, and then Hosea bringing her back anyways. We saw God working through Hosea to help Hosea understand God's feelings towards Israel. So now we are moving into the part of the book where Hosea is talking directly to the people of Israel. In these chapters, Hosea's audience is the people of Israel. As Michelle mentioned a few weeks ago, a lot of prophets talk to the rulers of the kingdoms. Hosea is different in that his words are mostly directed to the religious leaders and the people of Israel. As we will see in these chapters, the religious leaders are some of the greatest offenders because they are the teachers, the spiritual leaders. They were supposed to be who the people turned to 
to know how to act towards God. They were supposed to be teaching the people about God. The religious leaders were the ones who knew the most about the covenant with God. They knew the laws of God, and for them to blatantly turn away from these laws, the people had no hope in doing what was right. So as we see in the beginning of chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Hosea is wanting the attention of the Israelites to show them their sins. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. The Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. Hosea specifically mentions sins that are straight from the Ten Commandments. The Israelites would have known the Ten Commandments so well. He is speaking to them about something that they all would have understood. He is making it so perfectly clear to them that they are sinning directly against God and the laws that he gave to them. So then in verse 3, it talks about how their sins will affect every aspect of the covenant. Because of their sins against God, the land itself will languish. The beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea will disappear. I looked up languish, and it means to lose or lack vitality, grow weak or feeble, to suffer from being forced to remain in an unpleasant place or situation. So we all remember that this was the promised land. The promised land was the land of milk and honey. This beautiful land that they were gifted by God to take over in the covenant. But if we remember in Deuteronomy 28, there were consequences to breaking that covenant. Deuteronomy 28:15 says, But it shall come about, if you do not obey the Lord your God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Drought, famine, locust, invasion, these were all curses threatened by the law for breaking the covenant. Therefore, because of their sins, the land will soon be languishing. Hosea was letting them know, you all may be in a time of prosperity right now, but soon this will all be taken away. And what was so terrible is they didn't have any authorities telling them about their sins reminding them not to do these things. Verse 4 says, Yet let no one find fault, and let none other reproof. The false prophets and priests were stumbling themselves. It says in verse 5, There was no one living by God's law. It had been abandoned. And therefore God says, I will destroy your mother, meaning the nation of Israel. So then in verse 6 it says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. In this, in this verse, they've rejected the Lord's instruction part of the covenant. They agreed that they would obey him and then be blessed. They would follow the laws that he had given them and in return be blessed. And one of the ways that they would be blessed is that they would be priests to all the nations. And in this verse 6, he is saying, 
you no longer have that blessing. You have lost that. You are no longer in that high position of being the priest to my nations. In the commentary, Hosea's Heartbreak by Jack Riggs, he says, The tragedy of Israel's plight is that she did have the truth of God to guide her, but she rejected it. She had the written revelation of God's counsel, but she ignored it. Consequently, the forthcoming devastation of the kingdom also meant that she would be stripped of her priestly rank, which would have fitted her to stand between God and the Gentile nations as his truth bearer. Now that privileged position would be taken away due to her willful rejection of God's special revelation, which had been delivered to her. So in James 3.1, it says, teachers will incur stricter judgment. So because of what Israel is doing to God, turning their backs on his laws, instead of what he asked them to do in the covenant and be held as the priest of all nations, they are going to receive a stricter judgment. He also says at the end of verse 6, since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also forget your children. So this judgment was not just for this generation. As punishment for their rejection of God's laws, the future of the priestly line would be cut off. However, God still has love for this nation. And this will all be restored according to the prophecy in Zechariah 3. In Zechariah 3, verses 3 through 5, it says, Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. So in this vision, Joshua is representing the nation of Israel, and he was clothed in filthy rags, representing Israel's pattern of behavior involving constant defilement of the priesthood and the people. The removal of the filthy garments in Zechariah 3 verse 4 represents the promised future justification and the salvation of the nation. The high priest was symbolically clothed with rich robes, which represents the restoration of Israel to her original calling as the priest of all nations. So as we can see, God's anger and wrath against Israel will not last forever. But Hosea is making sure the people of Israel know they will be punished for their current harlotry against God. When we move to verse 7 in Hosea chapter 4, we see now that he's talking directly to the priests. This verse says, The more they multiplied, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. Now you would think if there are more priests, then a nation would be more godly. But this is not the case. Here he is talking about the false priests of Israel's idolatrous altars. These priests were meant to bring glory to God, but instead they were abusing their power and bringing this glory to themselves. People trusted them and their knowledge, and the priests abused it. In verse 8, it says, They feed on the sin of my people and direct their desire toward iniquity. 
So the word iniquity here is translated from the Hebrew word avon, A-W-O-N. And this word speaks of distorting or twisting oneself from the straight way. As a guide might deliberately lead a follower into trouble. So basically the priests were glad when the people sinned. They were directing the people to sin. Because when people sinned, they were offering sacrifices to Baal for that sin. There was so much sin and so many sacrifices that the priests were abundant in this meat and in the fines that were being paid. So therefore, the priests were turning around and profiting from these sacrifices, selling the sin sacrifices for money. Hosea is accusing the priests of encouraging these false hypocritical sacrifices in order to gain money for their own selves. Charles Feinberg, in his commentary on Hosea, says, The people were no less culpable than the priest, nor was he less blameworthy than they. He conformed his life to their ways, and they, viewing the godless conduct of their teachers, found an example they delighted to follow, as well as confirmation for their own deeds. The priests reaped a harvest in a corrupted and misled people. This takes us to verse 9 that says, And it will be like people like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. So Hosea was telling these priests and the people, You will all be punished equally. Hosea then goes on to summarize the priests' sins. Verse 10 says, They will eat but not have enough. They will play the harlot but not increase because they have stopped giving heed to the Lord. The priests were greedy through their schemes of hoarding food and encouraging cult prostitution to promote fertility. Yet God would not allow these efforts to succeed. They have deserted the Lord by breaking his covenant and they will be punished. So as we can see, the sins of Israel were throughout the whole nation and all classes. In verse 12, we see that the hearts of Israel are so hardened to the Lord and his ways that they are turning to wooden idols. They were consulting diviner's wands. I was not sure what these were, so I looked it up. And they are rods that were placed upright. And after repeated incantations or witchcraft, these rods were allowed to fall. And the future was interpreted or predicted by the way these rods fell. The spirit of harlotry has led them astray, it says in verse 12, and they have played the harlot departing from their God. They were turning to witchcraft. They have laws that were directly given to them from God. They have a God who loves them and is so devoted to them, yet they were turning to sticks that fell on the ground. Their minds were so intoxicated with the desire to serve gods other than the Lord himself. And God had warned them of this. He gave them the promised land, but he told them to destroy the places of idol worship. In verse 13, Hosea talks about how the people go up to these places on top of the mountains to offer sacrifices. They burn incense on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is pleasant. 
God was so specific with them in Deuteronomy 12, 2 and 3, that those places be destroyed when they got into the land, but clearly they weren't. This made me think about us. Remember that Michelle has said that we are Gomer, we are Israel. If there's something that's an idol in our life, like binge watching a TV show or checking social media, I'm talking about myself here, we don't get rid of it. We think, oh, I have willpower. I don't have to turn the TV on. I don't have to check and see how many likes I got on that last post that I made. The Israelites probably thought, those trees are beautiful and nice. We don't need to destroy them. That shade is so wonderful. But God knew if those places weren't destroyed, his people would fall prey to them. He knew that Satan would use them against his people. And Satan will do the same for us. He will use those things in our lives that don't bring glory to him. He will use that app on our phone. But we need our phone. We need a phone to be able to contact someone in an emergency. But I, I know I don't need to keep that app front and center so that I see the little red bubble every time I open up my phone. I used to be so bad about waking up in the morning and immediately checking Facebook. I, I don't even know why I was doing it. When I should be waking up in the morning and turning to God, turning to prayer. Thankfully, we have the Holy Spirit to guide us, to help us to be reminded to turn back to the Lord. The Israelites didn't have the Holy Spirit. That's why they were instructed to put reminders everywhere about God and his laws and the covenant. And God knew the weaknesses of his people, and he knew the temptation those places of idol worship would be. Because they were not destroyed, and then Jeroboam created even more places, the idol worship spread like wildfire among the nation of Israel, and the people forgot God. So we see in Hosea chapter 4, the end of verse 13, Hosea talks about the daughters playing the harlot and the brides committing adultery. Then in verse 14, he says, The men go away with the harlots and offer sacrifices with temple prostitutes. Hosea says the people without understanding are ruined. It was both men and women who were deep in idolatry and completely forsaking their God. And both the men and the women would answer for their sins. So now when we go on to verse 15, we see Hosea is warning Judah. Judah hasn't been sucked into the idolatry yet. Hosea says that Judah is not to go to Gilgal or Beth-Avon. These were two well-known places of false worship. The prophet is urging the people of Judah to not to become involved in Israel's sin. Israel did not heed the warnings of their sin, and now they are like a stubborn heifer. Hosea is wanting to remind Judah of this so that hopefully they will not fall prey to the same sins. This warning with Hosea's comparison of Israel to a stubborn heifer is basically saying that Israel will be left out to pasture on its own. This reminded me of Michelle's story of her little dog who was allowed to run on its chain. The chain was protecting him. If he hadn't been on the chain, he would have gotten into a lot of trouble on his own. God is saying he's removing the chain from Israel. He's removing his protection from them and allowing the enemy to prey upon them. But all worship was Israel's undeniable passion. 
It was a passion that would ultimately cause God to abandon them and lead them to ruin. So as we've seen in chapter 4, all aspects of Israel were corrupt. And when we come to Hosea chapter 5, again Hosea is saying in verse 1, Hear this, O priests, give heed, O house of Israel, listen, O house of the king, for the judgment applies to you. Here, Hosea is calling out the leaders of the nation along with the people. He's reminding them they were supposed to be the watchmen or the shepherds of the people. But instead of pointing them back to God during times of drifting away, they led the nation into total absence of God. Verse 1 continues to say, Of you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread out on Tabor. Those were two places of false worship to Baal. A snare and a net are both traps used in hunting. Hosea is saying to the leaders, you led your people into traps at these places of idolatry. Mizpah was in the east and Tabor was in the west of the land. So Hosea is painting a picture here that the leaders have led their entire nation into destruction from east to west. Therefore, since all of the nation was involved, they would all be punished. Verse 2 goes on to say, The revolters have gone deep in depravity, but I will chastise all of them. The judgment was for everyone. No one was exempt. Even though the priests of the northern kingdom were false priests and the, kingdom was not an, and the king was not anointed by God, everyone in Israel was still held to the covenant made between God and the Israelites before they came into the promised land. Therefore, they would all be held accountable. In verse 3 of Hosea 5, the guilt of the nation as a whole is declared. Israel could not hide its sin from the omniscient God. Verse 3 says, I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the harlot. Israel has defiled itself. The severe sins of Israel cannot be hidden from God. He knows Israel better than she knows herself. Israel may have been hoping to hide her defilement, or maybe she was deceiving herself for how bad her sins actually were. But God knew. God knows. We can't hide from him. Israel's sins, her adultery against God, has caused her to become spiritually darkened. Verses 4 and 5 say, Their deeds will not allow them to return to their God. For a spirit of harlotry is within them, and they do not know the Lord. Moreover, the pride of Israel testifies against him. And Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah also has stumbled with them. So instead of the warnings of God's judgment bringing about changes of heart and repentance, Israel has become proud. And now we see that even Judah did not heed the warnings and has fallen with Ephraim. And Israel's obsession with Baal has taken complete possession of their hearts. And it's caused them to forget all knowledge of God. When you become proud, your pride testifies against you. It's self-exaltation. Israel has exalted itself above God. 
God hates pride. Destruction comes as a result of pride. Pride is not just a sin of past Israel, but it is a sin that will not go away. Jesus addresses pride in Matthew 23:12. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Again, we remember that we are not Hosea. We are Israel. These sins that Israel are struggling with, we all still struggle with today. Idolatry, greed, pride, we can all become slaves to that sin. But thankfully for us, we have Jesus. John 8, 34-36 says, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does not remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. We have been forgiven of our sins, but Israel's sins would cause God to withdraw from them. Verses 6 and 7 in Hosea 5 talk about God's punishments that Israel will receive. Israel will try to turn back to God with sacrifices, But they were so far from the Lord that these sacrifices were hypocritical and devoid of any genuine covenant loyalty. Therefore, God would turn his back on them. He would withdraw from them. The other punishment in verse 7 would come as a result of their children born of Baal prostitution worship and their new moon festivals. This punishment would come in the form of destruction of those places of worship, either from drought, blight, insects, and also overrun by invading armies. In verse 8, Hosea brings this attention to a future invasion, telling them to blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah, sound an alarm at Beth-Avon, behind you, Benjamin. So in those days, Watchtowers were placed at the borders of kingdoms, and horns would sound when enemy invaders were spotted. Hosea was letting them know that soon they would hear these horns, that soon the enemy would be closing in on them. What's interesting about the cities that are mentioned in that verse is that they were Benjamite cities. Benjamin belonged to Judah. So Hosea's prophecy indicates that he is seeing that Israel has already been destroyed and the enemy is heading to Judah next. Hosea is telling Ephraim of their coming desolation, their coming complete destruction of which he is 100% confident will happen. He has seen it. And although in chapter 4, Judah was still innocent, they did not heed the warnings from Hosea and they will now be invaded by the enemy as well. Verse 10 says, The princes of Judah have become like those who move a boundary. On them, I will pour out my wrath like water. The leaders of Judah were like those who move boundary stones. Moving a boundary stone was theft. Boundary stones showed the legal boundaries between properties, and moving them was a way of taking land from someone else. The princes of Judah were showing no respect to God's commands. They were moving the spiritual boundary lines that had been established by God. They were blurring the line between the one true God and the Canaanite gods, 
allowing their people to fall into idolatry just like the northern kingdom. And because of this, the wrath of God would come down on them like a flood. Therefore, God will be like a moth to Ephraim and rottenness to Judah, it says in verse 12. What do we know about moths and rottenness? They destroy, and those things don't come back. Both kingdoms were falling apart, but instead of looking to God, both looked somewhere else. Verse 13 says, When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jerob. So both states saw the desperate situation that they were in. But instead of realizing the true cause of their sickness, which was breaking the covenant laws, the states turned to Assyria. Assyria, the nation that God had already appointed as the enemy that would destroy them. Verse 13 continues to say, But he is unable to heal you or to cure you of your wound. So Israel, instead of turning to God and repenting for their sins, they turned to the enemy, the enemy that God had chosen to invade them. They were so blind to their sins, they thought their problems could be solved by man. Again, Israel would not come back to God. And because of this, in verse 14 and 15, God says he will be like a lion to Ephraim and Judah, tearing them to pieces and then going away. He will go away and return to his place until they acknowledge their guilt and earnestly seek him in their affliction. Hosea is saying that God will attack his people, tear them to pieces, and carry off his prey. And no one will be able to deliver them from this ferocious assault. Israel eventually fell to Assyria, with most of the population carried away from the promised land. This is found in 2 Kings 17, verses 4 through 23. At the end of the passage, in verses 22 and 23, it says, The sons of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did. And they did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel from his sight, as he spoke through all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was carried away into exile from their own land to Assyria until this day. Judah was also invaded and devastated by the Assyrians, although she remained as a nation, which can be found in 2 Kings 18, 13 through 19, 37. The ultimate purpose of the Lord's judgment on his people was to restore them. Both nations deserted God and didn't recognize it. God withdrew from them, and they will not again know his gracious, helpful presence until they repent. It is then that he will be gracious to them in complete restoration. So these last few verses of chapter 5 really made me think about who I turn to during a time of desolation, a time of despair and need. And it made me think of one of the darkest times in my life after I had my daughter Brooklyn and I struggled with postpartum depression. I was thinking back to where I looked for help. I do remember listening to worship songs, but I also remember turning to Amazon and ordering every possible thing I could find to make me a better mom and my baby a better baby. I remember texting with my non-Christian friend who had had a baby two days before I had mine, and I was trying to figure out if what was happening to me was normal, if she was experiencing the same things. 
I went around and around turning to all of these other things. I turned to the internet and friends and buying things, but did I turn to God? Did I genuinely look to him for answers? Did I open my Bible and dive into his word to seek him and seek his guidance? I don't remember doing that. It was one of the darkest times of my life, and I tried everything else before going to God. It's so easy for me to look at the Israelites in disbelief and judge their total disregard for the God that saved them and brought them into their promised land. It's so easy for me to read through Hosea and think, how easily do the Israelites forget? But how easily do we forget his promises for us? How easily do we forget all the blessings that we have because of him? Now, I'm in no way saying that my postpartum was a result of my sin, but I do believe God allowed me to experience that affliction so that I would turn back to him. I do believe that we can be so thankful, and unlike the Israelites, we can be so thankful that we have salvation in Christ. I want to end today with a quote from Tobias Crisp that I read in Lisa Hughes' book, Unmet Expectations. Hey, that happened to me yesterday when I was practicing in here. All the lights went off. (laughs) So this quote from Tobias Chris says, Through Christ's satisfaction for sin, the very nature of affliction is changed with regard to believers. As death, which was at first the wages of sin, is now become a bed of rest. So afflictions are not the rod of God's anger, but the gentle medicine of a tender father. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this time that we can come together and learn more about who you are. I just pray that through this study, we can be reminded of the blessings that you provide for us. And even if we are in a time of sin, a time of trial or desperation or sadness, I just pray that we will remember to give it all to you, to repent and to turn to you. I pray that um, we will learn from the Israelites, that we will grow in our knowledge of you and your loving graciousness. Be with us this week and use the Holy Spirit to guide us always back to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So there's a couple of questions on the back of the outline. Um, Some of them are kind of personal, and you can share just what you want to share, but I really just wanted you this week to just really think about um, any idols you may have or things you have that you need to bring to the Lord. So we'll start discussing those with your tables.